The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome. Well, I get excited at spring. You know, it's just such a time of rejuvenation, especially after a long winter of lockdowns and so on and so forth. And one of the things that's happening is, of course, the furnace is not going on as much. And in this part of the world, our furnaces are driven by natural gas. And it's been a long time since we've talked about natural gas. Yeah, and it's an important topic because we have a massive project in Canada underway, the LNG Canada facility, which is going to be Canada's largest ever investment, something like $40 billion. And it was a couple of years ago when we had Susanna Pierce give us an update, and I think it's about time we learned what's going on there. Well, I can tell you, for me, this has been a project that I've followed for almost 15 years in terms of what's going on on the West Coast. So I am delighted to introduce our special guest on the line from Vancouver. We're privileged to have Peter Zebedee. He is the CEO at LNG Canada. LNG Canada is the corporate developer of this big LNG project that we're all waiting for. When it starts sending out, it's going to send out about 1.8 BCF per day. And to put that in perspective, that's about oh, 10 to 15%, depending upon the season, of Canada's total natural gas production. So welcome, Peter Zebedee. Well, thanks very much for having me here. Great. Well, maybe for the benefit of our audience and by way of introduction, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to lead the LNG Canada project. Uh, thanks very much, Jackie. I've had almost a 25-year career now in the uh, energy industry here in Canada. Really started out my career with Syncrude in their oil sands operations. Had an opportunity to work for Etra Canada on the Fort Hills project a number of years ago before coming to Shell in 2009. So I've really had the benefit of working the full oil sands value chain from everything from oil sands mining and extraction to the upgrading, refining, and chemicals projects. And my previous role before coming to LNG Canada, I was the vice president for uh, Shell's manufacturing footprint in Canada that included the Scotford Manufacturing Centre and Zarnia Refinery. And then in uh, July of 2019, had the opportunity to come to uh, LNG Canada, and it's just been such a fantastic mm. role. It's really the role of a lifetime for me. And I've always had a passion for uh, working in large energy projects, and I always wanted to lead and guide the next generation of energy projects that are coming to Canada. I think this role embodies that, and it's, it's a real privilege to be a part of a project that's opening up a, a new business for Canadians and for British yeah. Columbians. Well, let's talk about the project, because a decade ago, we used to refer to it as the Shell Project, but there's more partners. It's a multinational suite of partners. Can you tell us who all the partners are and remind our audience? Yeah, thanks, Peter. LNG Canada is a joint venture company. It's comprised of five global energy companies all of whom have substantial experience in liquid natural gas. So those are Shell, Mitsubishi, Petronas, PetroChina, and Kogas from Korea. Okay, so it's not just a Shell project. I know I think sometimes people have that perception. And the ownership level is pretty shared amongst that whole group. Yeah, correct. Now, Shell's the largest participant in the project with a 40% ownership position. Petronas has 25%, Mitsubishi and PetroChina 15%, and Kogas has 5%. Let's talk about the topics for today. And, and by the way, Peter, it'll be interesting to hear 
about how your major projects experience that you've already had and how that compares to the projects that you're working on now with LNG Canada. But first, let's talk about the international LNG markets, and then we'll get into the project. So I wanted to uh, put a link in the show notes for our listeners to this report that Shell publishes annually on the state of the LNG markets. And they just in March of 2021 put out their latest edition. And here are some of the takeaways that despite the pandemic, the collapse in demand last spring, LNG sales were actually really strong by the end of the year. So there was this big recovery in Asia and there was also some cold weather. And so they really recovered much faster maybe than people thought during the worst of the pandemic. The other thing that's happened with the pandemic is there's just more concerns about fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. But the report concluded that even considering all these climate goal pledges that have happened, the LNG market is still expected to almost double by 2040. And a lot of that growth is coming from Asia. And LNG is still a big benefit in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, about half the emissions of power that comes from coal. So the takeaway was that because there were very few projects that were sanctioned, there is need for more projects, maybe very soon. And on top of that, there's still a strong outlook for LNG, even with all these climate pledges. Well, let's uh, ask the question then, Peter. So we've got a doubling of LNG production consumption by 2040. How is that consistent with the sort of this drive to net zero by 2050? I think the, the push towards net zero will really increase demand for LNG. And that's because LNG fits into what I consider a comprehensive and layered global carbon reduction strategy. Our largest shareholder, Shell, aims to be a net zero carbon company by 2050, as does Petronas. They have the same target. And LNG is but one tool in the toolkit that will also include things like renewables, like CCS, etc. Fundamentally, these new energy sources like LNG will offset higher intensity sources, and that's the key to getting to net zero. Yeah, and when you're swapping out a coal plant, it's really substantial, isn't it? Exactly, right. And Jackie mentioned that before, but LNG provides 50% lower CO2 emissions than coal. And that's really the big reason why LNG is replacing coal in so many locations around the world. You mentioned Shell's 2021 LNG outlook, but if we look a little bit deeper into that outlook, we can see how LNG demand intersects with net zero goals. Global LNG demand in the outlook is forecasted to hit 700 million tons by the year 2040, and that's a full 94% increase from the 360 million ton a year that we see here in 2020. We know that Asia is going to drive 75% of its demand growth as LNG substitutes out for those higher emission sources. And China itself has made an announcement to become carbon neutral by the year 2060, and that's what's driving up their LNG demand is that really they look to decarbonize those hard-to-abate sectors like buildings, like heavy industry, shipping, and heavy-duty road transport. So really we see that along with other countries, China is moving away from coal, and that's the role of LNG, and that's the role of LNG in this energy transition. Yeah, I think a lot of people here in North America, Europe, don't fully appreciate the scale of still coal consumption in parts of Asia. I mean, the coal consumption and the growth has just been massive over there. And so being able to offset 50% of emissions is a major improvement, especially over the course of, say, the next 10, 20 years, where carbon abatement is really important. So, Peter, I wanted to ask you, the government of Canada plans to legislate net zero, and you talked about the fact that 
Shell and Petronas, two major partners, also have those goals. Costs aside, is net zero emissions possible for an LNG facility? I believe it is, Jackie. I think LNG can and LNG Canada can achieve net zero. It's going to be achievable with the right policy framework in place. It's certainly at the top of the mind of all of our joint venture participants with their net zero plans, as you mentioned. And I think we're starting to see advancements up and down the LNG value chain towards net zero. Give you an example. We've seen LNG bulk carrier shipments that are already starting to reach net zero. Shell itself has already delivered carbon neutral LNG shipments into Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, and now has agreements in place to ship carbon neutral LNG into China. And as recently as this month, took delivery of its first carbon neutral cargo, LNG cargo into Europe. So it's an exciting time, and I think it's entirely possible. Well, energy has to be competitive on cost for sure, just like any other product, but it also has to be competitive these days on carbon intensity. So let's talk about the Canadian LNG facility off the west coast of BC. To what extent is it competitive on cost with other major LNG producers like the United States, Australia, Qatar, and so on? And then maybe give us a sense of how competitive it is also on carbon intensity. Yeah, I think LNG Canada proves that BC and Canada can deliver competitive energy projects. And LNG Canada puts Canada on the global map of these LNG exporting countries. The project itself, the LNG Canada project itself, is advantaged by access to abundant, low-cost natural gas from British Columbia's vast resources. We have some structural advantages with our geography. Our Kitimat location has a harbor that's ice-free all year. We have a very short shipping distance to North Asia. In fact, it's about 50% shorter than LNG cargo transit from the U.S. Gulf Coast. It avoids the Panama Canal and also the Suez Canal, which we know has been in the news quite a bit lately. And, of course, we're going to use BC natural gas that's produced and compressed using renewable electricity from the BC hydro grid. And a really good example of that is the Shell Saturn natural gas plant here in northeastern British Columbia, and that's fully electrified. Yeah, and there's another advantage is that, say, compared to Qatar and the United States, is that BC is colder already, especially in the winter. And so the energy required to liquefy to cold temperatures is a lot less. That's exactly right, Peter. I mean, at the heart of our facility are these energy-efficient gas turbines. They're, of course, supported with the latest methane mitigation technologies. That's going to help us with our low emission standards, but also the efficiency of the plant. We've really worked really hard together with Baker Hughes to improve the overall power performance efficiency in the turbines, which are the heart of the natural gas plant, the LNG liquefaction process. That's certainly going to help us deliver competitive cargoes into Asia. Well, it's exciting that Canada has competitive LNG. I know that's been a debate over time, you know, if we had what it takes to compete on the global stage. So it's exciting that this project's moving forward and that you see it as competitive. Now, the other side of the equation is what does this mean for the Canadian economy? These are major projects. I think this has been described as the largest single project in the history of Canada. What are the benefits to an LNG sector for the Canadian economy? I mean, obviously, there's an enormous amount of benefits, but a lot of lofty numbers that are sitting out there, and Canada in and of itself won't see the benefits, a really significant level of benefit without more LNG development. We've seen a number of 
projects that have lagged behind ours. I, I think it's exciting right now to see some new proposals coming forward. You see new voices, new leadership in the sector. Cedar LNG, as an example, is, is a proposed LNG facility that's going to operate close to ours in the Kitimat region. Mm. It's the Heisla Nation has a direct ownership stake in Cedar. We've got Heisla women in leading roles in the proposed development. I think that's very encouraging. But if I look at our own impact on the benefits to the Canadian economy and post-FID, the cumulative value of the projects that we've led so far to date, and that includes subcontracts to businesses in British Columbia and to Indigenous businesses, that continues to grow. It's now reached over $3 billion so far. $2.5 billion of that is to Indigenous locally owned and local businesses to date. And we've also got exceptionally strong support from all of the local First Nations closest to our project and those that are most impacted by it. We would not be anywhere near where we are today without the support of our Indigenous partners and, of course, our neighbours. It's critical to our success now and, and well into the future. Well, and we often hear about problems where there isn't support from the Indigenous communities, so that's great to hear that the vast majority of groups are in support. Just specifically, maybe give us some ideas of the types of economic benefits that the groups are getting. We've got exceptionally strong support from all the nations closest to our project and those that are most impacted by it. I think that's sometimes overlooked by the media that sometimes look for stories of conflict, but our relationships and the partnerships we have and the relationships with Indigenous leaders and communities, they continue to grow and develop. We have fostered those relationships. We've joined forces with them on a number of Indigenous-led organizations and programs, and those cover a wide variety of areas like higher education, scholarships for Indigenous students, raising important issues, social issues, and combating racism. I think we've got a great example of long-term sustaining benefit in our support for High Sea Marine. This is a real partnership between the High Sea First Nation and North Vancouver-based C-SPAN. They're going to provide us with operations and escort tugs and harbor tugs that are required to operate our export facility in Kitimat. These tugs use battery electric power, these natural gas instead of diesel fuel. They'll form one of the greenest tug fleets ever assembled. And that's all because of the strong partnership between the HISLA and C-SPAN. Mm. And it's going to provide long-term sustaining jobs for Indigenous community members for the mm. life of the operation. So it's really, really exciting. It's easy to lose perspective when we start talking billions of dollars, you know, three, four, forty billion dollars. You come from the world of big projects and oil sands and big energy Give us a sense of how big this project is. Give our audience a sense of you know what a $40 billion project is relative to other projects you've worked on. I think there's really some key similarities from a skill set perspective for the workforce. Large energy projects like oil sands, like LNG facilities, they require thousands of highly trained women and men. They represent a variety of trades uh, across the spread that all contributing to the construction of the facility. And we'll really find there's a really strong need for those workers. And that demand creates significant opportunities for Canadians that are drawn into these Mm -hmm. trades, the schools that train them, the support organizations, et cetera, et cetera. From my experience from an operations and a construction perspective, large energy infrastructure is, of course, extremely complex. It's technologically advanced. So there's a lot of similarities there. The level of innovation, quite similar. I think that's probably why I enjoy working on these projects. 
But I think what's really interesting about our project, about LNG Canada, is that it represents something that's completely new for Canada. It's the first large-scale LNG liquefaction facility ever built in the country. And for that reason alone, it attracts a lot of interest. All right. Well, tell us a bit about the projects. What milestones have you achieved over the past year? And uh, maybe you could address how COVID has impacted the project. I know that there was some delay and restart of construction recently. Sure. We're in our third year of construction now. We made a significant amount of projects. And yes, you're right. We had a few setbacks as we encountered COVID. But we continue to advance work across the whole project site and continue to hit some critical milestones. We are uh, characterizing this year as going vertical. Last year, we characterized it as getting out of the ground. But going vertical really means we've largely finished all the site preparation works in Kitimat. We're really starting to see the uh, construction of more and more of the process structures on site. We've now completed the opening of our Cedar Valley Lodge. That's our workforce accommodation center, and it's probably one of the more visible signs of construction progress in Kitimat today. We are about to finish our full piling program, so that's seen the installation of over 6,400 piles in the ground that's done safely. It was done on time. And one of the exciting things for me, anyways, personally, is the construction of the LNG tank. The walls are starting to go up. I know that we just finished the uh, installation of all of the roof pedals actually yesterday, and this is going to be a significant accomplishment. We're looking to raise the roof on that tank later on this year, and and when it's at its ultimate height, it'll be a full 55 meters high, so quite a significant structure. When is the first tanker notionally set to go out? Our schedule is we are targeting to deliver our first cargo by the middle of the decade, and we maintain that we are fully on track to meet that schedule. So like 2025-ish. Yeah, in that time frame, correct. Mm -hmm. Has COVID reduced the size of the workforce that you could have on the site at any one time? Right at the start of the pandemic, we set out for ourselves three simple priorities that our leadership could use to make decisions in what was clearly a rapidly changing environment. And those, we were going to protect our people. You know, we're going to maintain the health and safety of our people. We're going to protect the community and make sure that we're keeping the community safe and we're going to protect our project from a schedule perspective. And we've held true to those as we've gone through the pandemic, and yet we've seen some setbacks. At the end of last year, we reduced our construction workforce in line with guidance from Northern Health and the public health officer here in British Columbia. In February, we received approval for a restart plan and a gradual ramp-up. February, we had about 1,200 workers on the site. We're sitting at just over 2,500 today, and we'll do a gradual increase to that number to just over 3,000, which will be our full complement later on this spring. And we do that, of course, all based on prudent COVID controls, appropriate engagement with the public, and, of course, public health Mm -hmm. authorities. We've got lots of strong measures in place to reduce the risk of transmission of COVID-19, both at the workplace itself, but in the worker accommodation center in Cedar Valley Lodge. We've got lots of protocols in place. And since early this year, we've actually implemented a mandatory COVID-19 rapid screening program. So all workers coming into the Kinemat project site are screened using rapid antigen testing, and that's proven to be quite a successful barrier for us in making sure that we're keeping people healthy. This is a region that is accustomed to having a lot of workers in camps. I mean, I remember when I was out there a few years ago, there was a very large work camp for the aluminum 
project that's just down the street from you. So you're able to get workers and accommodate them all? Yeah, I mean, we've been really successful at, at attracting workers from British Columbia, but indeed from across Canada. I think one of the main elements of the attraction for our project specifically is the level of quality that we put into our worker accommodation center into our Cedar Valley Lodge. It's a really impressive facility. It's about the size of 21 football fields and can accommodate up to 4,500 women and men each, you know, with their own bedroom, with a private bathroom. And we took a lot of lessons learned from the energy industry here in Canada on putting quality into that construction, putting a lot of thought into that. We held consultations with Indigenous communities, with local community members, women in the trades, and that helped shape the input and, and ultimately the final design of that facility, which reflects uh, the core principles mm-hmm. about for community, inclusivity, safety, and quality of living. Our construction director will call this a uh, six-star facility. I tend to agree <laughs> with him, but it's really something special, yeah. I think. It's our commitment to the workforce and to make sure that people feel cared for and welcome on the OG Canada site. So is that a temporary facility? Will it be taken down when the project starts up? We don't have, I would say, a full long-term plan for that. My hope is that we are going to uh, continue this and we'll look at hopeful future growth for LNG Canada down the road. We'll be able to use that facility for that. Well, it's a six-star facility in a six-star environment. Anybody who's been to Terrace Kitimat knows that it's just a a gorgeous place as well. So I think one thing that's really unique about this project compared to the oil sands and compared to other major projects in Canada is your location, because you sit there right on the ocean with the ability to bring in these large-scale modules where oil sands mining projects, because they're so far inland, everything has to be built in place. So tell us about those modules that are coming from Asia, how big they are, and what some of the challenges are of moving them to Kitimat and getting them into place. The number of modules that we have coming across the ocean is going to be in numbers in the hundreds. Um, they, of course, range in size, but the largest is equivalent in height to a 10-story building. It's going to weigh over 10,000 tons. You can imagine the logistical complexity of that. Wow. Yeah, a lot of these modules fabricated, of course, in Asia. They'll be rolled off from the yards onto ships and then rolled into sites where they're ultimately connected by the workforce, the thousands of workers that we're going to have here in Kitimat. It's going to be an exciting time. We're going to receive our first modules. They're going to start to arrive in the fourth quarter of this year, and that's really going to start to change the landscape of the project site itself. So, yeah, it's quite exciting for us. So I guess would you have, like, large cranes that can move? Like, how do you get them into place? Yeah, there'll be transporters. They'll effectively be transported along the haul road. We constructed a a three-kilometer haul road from, we call it our materials offloading facility. The modules will move on transporters along the haul road and into position in the process plant. Just like really big Lego blocks all getting stuck together. Hopefully they all fit. That's exactly exactly right, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be phenomenal. It'll be great to see some photos. I looked at your website. You know, some major projects do put some photos up, and there were some there, but we hope that uh, you can put some photos up so people can watch as the project gets put together. It's going to get exciting now because today the photos, like you say, it's just seeing the ground works. You can't see too much. But as it starts to go vertical, it'd be exciting for everyone to be able to, Mm. to see those pictures. Well, I have some photos from 10 years ago that we can post to show what it looks like. The Douglas Channel, and it was a photo I took hanging out of a helicopter. 
So it really gives a perspective of the location. And then if we can augment that with on the ground photos, that would be awesome. Yeah, if there's any photos, we could actually put on our blog and we could put a link to the viewers. Oh, yeah, happy to do that. I think even in the year and a half that I've been, you know, the, the whole, even with the bike construction footprint, that it's just changed dramatically. And as you say, this year is really going to make a big difference. So we'll make sure we're documenting all of that. We've got regular drone footage out there on a weekly basis. So, yeah, it'll be exciting to kind of watch and monitor the progress of the project almost in real time. Yeah, and I think you've done a fair amount on the dock as well, right? There's a fair amount of work been done there to be able to receive the big ships and eventually the tankers. Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of in-water works over the last couple of years. We just completed our dredging scope of work earlier this spring. We've completed or almost completed our material offloading facility. So that's where all the modules are going to be offloaded. Work continues on the LNG jetty where the LNG tankers will dock. And we're also working on an alternate terminal project very close to the uh, Rio Tinto Alcan site. Well, it's been so great to get an update on the project. This is just a huge project for Canada, as you mm. talked about, has economic benefits for the whole country and also for the local communities who are benefiting with work and jobs and new businesses, but as well direct investments into their community and, you know, a whole new industry for Canada. So, mm -hmm. Peter, thanks for your leadership in making this project happen. And uh, we really look forward to hearing and following its progress over the next years. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Jackie. Thanks very much, Peter. I appreciate being here and giving you an update. And yeah, look forward to uh, continued sharing down the road as we build this project out. All right. And to our listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. If you liked it, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. Mm -hmm.